0: Good afternoon everyone or good evening if you're watching this in the UK. Catherine and I were just discussing the fact that while somebody wished her happy holiday week in fact it's not a holiday week yet in England but of course we're coming up on Thanksgiving. So what I'm looking at here is super spy science. Science, death and tech in the world of James Bond and that's what we're going to talk about but before we do that I want to talk to Catherine about her work um, with Agatha Christie, and I don't know if you know this, Catherine, but I just got my copy from Bloomsbury and you have a big section in it, which is called the Bloomsbury Handbook to Agatha Christie, but we are co-authors because I wrote the last chapter. Oh, fantastic. I know, it's really fun. Um, It's a
1: hefty tome, I have to say. It's, yeah, it'll prop a door shut very effectively. it yeah. is
0: massive. It's also incredibly expensive for the average reader yes. because it's something like $175 US and I can't remember $239 in Canada or something. So it's part of Bloomsbury's um, uh, hand. It's a, it's an academic publication. But um, my author, Marianna Evans, who was a Poison Pen Press author, is one of the two editors and uh, put it together. My old friend, Val McDermott, wrote the introduction. And then just to continue this, there's a wonderful book out called Marple, which has short stories from several contemporary authors. And Val wrote the second murder at the Vicarage, which I truly love. Um, Cause murder at the Vicarage is actually in many ways my favorite Agatha Christie because it's the funniest. It's not the cleverest, but it's the funniest. And in fact, as I have pointed out when she wrote it, it was a contemporary what we would call a cozy mystery, but it's now become an historical cozy because, you know, times moved on and it was published in the early 1930s. But um, Catherine, as part of this book, wrote chapter 15, Poison in Golden Age Detective Fiction, which I'm assuming, Catherine, is based upon your wonderful book, A's for Arsenic, which was a fact about poisons used by Agatha Christie in her work.
1: Yeah, I did go over some old notes uh, from the A's for Arsenic book to put together the chapter for the the Bloomsbury um, collection, there's all sorts of contributions to that book. I I know it's a lot of money, but you you do get a lot for that money, lots of different perspectives on Agatha. But yes, I based it very much on my uh, previous research into Agatha Christie and her marvellous use of chemical uh, weapons in her books.
0: And in fact, um, Agatha Christie, like my dear departed friend Ellis Peters, otherwise known as Edith Barger, um, served um, as a chemist or whatever you want to call it, British calling chemist, we call it pharmacist, but anyway, um, in the war. both Was it both wars? Hey. I think she was in both wars. And as a consequence, gained a lot of familiarity with how poisons worked. And so she was a lot more accurate than, let's say, Dorothy Sayers, who, who really blew it when she tried to use a particular kind of mushroom poisoning in one of her books and got it all wrong i can't i never can remember the title of that book no i can't
1: remember i know she got it uh her book uh strong poison because that uses arsenic i know oh. she did her homework on that one and for nine that was another 1930s i think uh for 1930s arsenic science it was on the money but science has moved on and it now is dated but well, she, yeah. so a bit more hit in this than agatha agatha is definitely hit Uh, as far as poisons are concerned. Well, Dorothy
0: had the wrong mushroom, the way I remember it. Either they had or she pulled it wrong. For It wasn't strong poison. It's a a different book. But anyway, Mm -hmm. Catherine talks about, um, in big headlines in the work of Agatha Christie, uh, the use of thallium, the use of nicotine, which was actually remarkably easy to get because everybody smoked, you know, so getting nicotine was pretty simple. And then our favorite, arsenic, which uh, they're probably... I would guess, Catherine, there were many more deaths from arsenic than were ever actually counted as deaths from arsenic, because it was so hard to figure it out.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I am sure there are graveyards uh, filled with bodies that were uh, brought there by arsenic and didn't necessarily alert the authorities.
0: Well, yeah, for getting rid of inconvenient people or whatever. Or wealthy
1: people. Yep.
0: Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, Wilkie Collins, the Moonstone, is a really great example of the kind of thing that could happen, let's say, to a wealthy but hapless woman when people wanted to pillage her, you know, her fortune. And Mm. um, and they could commit them to asylums. They could do all kinds of things, or they could just conveniently poison them. But anyway, I'm going to read, because I love the little biographical sketch here in this wonderful book called The Bloomsbury handbook to Agatha Christie. So here's Katherine Harkup. She's a writer and science communicator. Her interests are in anything Gothic, gory and geeky and preferably all three, which is terrific. I love that. As well as A.S. Forest Snake, The Poisons of Agatha Christie, she has written several other books on the crossover between science, history and literature, including Making the Monster, The Science of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which again, people are exploring today in different ways. Death by Shakespeare, snake bites, stabbing, and broken hearts, and vampirology—the science of horror's most famous fiend. Do you realize, Catherine, that witches are the new vampires? I don't know if you've noticed. Is that and true? Absolutely. Oh. In commercial fiction, in you know, crime fiction or gothic or whatever, gothic is having a moment. But witches have just come on strong this year. Um, wow! I find that I find that completely fascinating. So skipping over my bio, which doesn't really matter in this discussion, and continuing on, I like the way that your publisher, Bloomsbury, added a different thing. Catherine completed a doctorate in her fam- favorite chemicals, phosphines, and went on to first, further postdoctoral research before realizing the talking, writing, and demonstrating science appealed a bit more than hours slaving over a hot fume hood. For six years, she ran the outreach in engineering, computer f- computing, physics and math at the University of Surrey, which involve writing talks on science topics that would appeal to born teenagers. She's now a freelance science commentator delivering talks and workshops on the quirky side of science. And obviously you're having a wonderful time with it. So why James Bond? What what was so appealing to you about Bond?
1: Well, I mean, as the biography blurbs suggest that the Gothic and uh, my interest in death is all pervasive and a big franchise with an awful lot of death in it would be, and various deaths and uh, unusual deaths would be James Bond. So I'm afraid I jumped on the bond wagon and I watched all the films and I took lots of notes and I thought, oh yes, this this could be an interesting book. Let's uh, look at the practicalities of building your lair inside a, a hollowed out volcano. Uh, What will happen if someone gets covered in gold paint? Uh, All of those sort of big questions that you think about when you leave the cinema that you just go along with all throughout the film, but then afterwards you're like, but wait a minute, hang on, does that work? Um, And I'm one of those people that sits there and figures out if it does work. Um, Not that it matters, but it, it just interests me.
0: No, I think it's really fun. So you timed this for the 60th anniversary of the Dr. No, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. 60 years since uh, Sean Connery introduced himself as Bond, James Bond. Uh, and in that time, there have been a heck of, well, there's 25 films, there's 14 books, and an awful lot of spin offs. And it's become a phenomenon. It's incredible that the theme tune 007, even if you've never seen a film, 007 film you kind of know the basic tropes about it it's just become all pervasive and that's i think incredible
0: it is actually it's a lot like sherlock holmes in my opinion you know who would have guessed that holmes would become who's also having a moment in addition to agatha christie there are still people who are ardent um, sherlockians they Mm -hmm. you know write fan fiction they write real fiction they pursue um, the Baker Street Regulars is an actual group that gets together every year and celebrates it. And, you know, it's it such an interesting question, Cancer, and about what makes a character become an icon? What? How much do you think it's the cinema part that actually solidifies that?
1: I think cinema has an awful lot to do with it, just because you get a, a visual Image of what you know, you have your mental image from reading the books. Um, but certainly the way they are presented on screen, certainly Sherlock, even some of the Agatha Christie's, and certainly James Bond, they all have a certain style to them. Whether it's you know, Victorian, you know, smoggy streets of London, all of the you know, the carriages, etc., etc., they're very um, evocative, they're very stylish and they stick in your memory. Uh, again even if you've never read a Sherlock Holmes film, you uh, book rather, you know that he wears a deerstalker, you know he smokes a pipe you know he, you know plays the violin all of these things are conveyed i think primarily through cinema because it just has a much bigger audience uh, globally as well because these things get dubbed uh, reinterpreted in different countries so it it just spreads like wildfire once it makes it to the silver screen
0: well it really does i mean i think the visual part you know in addition to the storytelling part has a lot to do with it if you look at sherlock holmes i mean i'm convinced that it were not for the illustrations in the strands so that we got those, you know, iconic images of Holmes and his or with his, I mean, you, you only have to see a silhouette of a man, yeah. you know, in a funny hat with a Meerschaum pipe and you know instantly that it is Sherlock Holmes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then and then it translated to the screen and it took somebody, you know, the Basil Rathbone, for example, yeah. I'm, I'm old enough to actually watch those in real time, um, was an actor that was able to, for a time anyway, really personify Holmes and you know popularize him in the same way that Sean Connery I think was uh, mm-hmm. was a brilliant casting decision for the James Bond franchise. Even though do you, how many how many actors have we now got in all the films? Do you, in the um,
1: films, I think we're up to six. So Sean Connery,
0: Daniel sorry, I'm going blank here, is the most recent. Yeah. But who else do we have? Pierce, was Pierce Yeah, We had Brosnan?
1: Pierce Brosnan. We had George Lazenby, only for one film. We had Roger Moore ah. and uh, Timothy Dalton.
0: That's right. Okay. And they're all different. Um, they're my, all very different. Yeah. yeah um, very different interpretations of it. I think that Daniel Craig might be the most athletic. Maybe he and Sean Connery. And you know, they're relatively small, kind of, you know, muscly kind of guys. I mean, they're not like a Marvel character, you know, where they're six foot eight yeah. and you know, completely bulked up. But um, you know, I think maybe that contributes to the believability is they they don't look that extraordinary until they get into action.
1: No, I mean, as you say, they're certainly not sort of Marvel universe sized, you know, musculature, but they even more so perhaps the marvel heroes whatever happens to them they just dust you know brush the dust off their dinner jacket and they're ready to go again they they're invincible apart from craig craig i think daniel craig has uh, shown that bond can be broken mm-hmm.
0: uh,
1: emotionally and physically which i think the franchise needed because it had become almost well it still is to a certain extent but it's comic book the amount of you know <laughs> weaponry that's fired towards Bond, the sort of explosions he just walks away from. So yeah, I think we needed to see a bit of vulnerability uh in Bond. And Daniel Craig was willing to do that. I I don't know how willing the other actors would have been.
0: No, I think I think you're right that he was able to reinvent it. And also switching M to a woman, you know, and then putting her well, you know, she dies. Um, I think that, they couldn't really kill off Bond, but they could emphasize the mortality on the vulnerability of the characters by killing her.
1: Uh, absolutely. And I, there have been several M's even before uh, Judy Dench took the role. So that was always seen as it was a job and you could have a different person filling that job. Mm-hmm. Whereas Bond has always been a person. Uh, 007 is it's a job but James Bond is a person so actually to reinvent a person is more difficult and to kill that person off in a franchise is I think very brave and why they th- you know, I think why they're more willing to bump off minor characters rather than your main guy, even though he can, you know, regenerate like Doctor Who. It it doesn't seem to be a problem for him.
0: Yeah, I know it is I'm one of those biological things, like an amphibian or a lizard that loses its tail or something. They're absolutely
1: just yeah, it's just a flesh wound, cut off a limb, and well, another one will grow. No,
0: it's wonderful. Um, and you know, we'll get to it in a second. But I was also thinking. Um, how many, I'm trying to remember, because I should have counted them up, how many actual Ian Fleming books there were. There were not a lot, do I? There were 14. Okay. And so then... I think there's
1: um, only 10 or 11 novels. There's collections of short stories in that. So, that, I mean, that's, you know, scant source material for yeah. 25 films. So, yeah, they've stretched it, reinvented it, replotted it. And fair credit to them. They've done a a marvelous job.
0: There have been some interesting um, follow-ons, so to speak. I mean, for those of you watching who are not familiar with literary estates, um, and this is advice I give to lots of authors who come and see us, if you don't want anyone else to write your work and write your character, you need to address that by creating a literary estate with an executor. But, um, you know, the Holmes thing was dragged on forever um, because some of the some of the rights or maybe all of them were left to a charity and you know it took forever for the copyright to expire which it Mm -hmm. now has and did at different times than the us and the uk um and clearly the bond estate you know agreed to um to let all this happen Um,
1: yeah i mean i think fleming himself while he was alive he was quite keen to sell the rights uh, right. to filmmakers, which because that's where the money is. Oh, fair enough. Uh, since his passing, I, I don't really know who is there is clearly there is a Fleming estate. there is a, 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 lit- a group or a person who looks after Fleming's interests. but I, I don't know how they arrive at decisions. I don't know who's involved. Uh, but yeah, they they do protect his uh, literary legacy quite fiercely.
0: Well, and they have licensed people to, you know, mm-hmm. to write sequential. I mean, Anthony Horowitz is probably the most recent. Jeffrey Deaver wrote a really terrific one. Uh, we did um, the book launch for it some years ago, and it was quite contemporary. Um, there's, you know, the authors seem to be free to sort of write Bond as as they want to, but mm-hmm. the point is they can do it, um, and therefore there has to be a licensing agreement with the um, the Fleming estate. And I think that all adds to it. But, you know, the film people obviously have written their own scripts, um, you know, because as you say, there's not that much source material. Certainly, certainly the last Daniel Craig was not written from any book, but rather, you know. No,
1: uh, neither were. I don't think the last four have much in common with the books beyond the characters and the title. Um, yeah. But it, it still stays true to what the bond you know what the bond was of the flowing books it's big adventure it's style lots of cool cars and gadgets all of the stuff that they started off with but they have as they need to thoroughly modernized it
0: yep. well there's cool alcoholic drinks there's a really great bridge hand in one of them i'm trying to remember which is which is based on an act. I'm a tournament bridge player. So I, I watched the hand is based on a, on a real hand that, that um, I'm trying to remember. It might've been whist rather than bridge. Cause it's a long no, ago. There's,
1: there's a bridge hand in Moonraker because uh, they figure out the bad guy is a bad guy. Cause he's cheating. Cause yeah. that's what bad guys do. Oh. Um, so yes. you know
0: they bring in lots of real world stuff or, you know, things that were created by Bond. but let's talk about, you know, because this is after all the point of your book, let's talk about the science and the tech and was that you know, do you think that that's more an invention of the films was that was there a lot of it written up in the in the books that Fleming just kind of made up?
1: Fleming was, I think, very interested in gadgetry. Certainly during the war, uh, he was involved, he worked in intelligence, and he certainly talked to people who devised real spy gadgets to smuggle information you know in and out of occupied territory and he was fascinated by that stuff and encouraged you know he took carried around with him a pen with a canister of tear gas in it that it was like one of his most prized possessions so yeah he loved all of that stuff and i think to a certain extent he definitely kept up to date with technology if you read things like uh from russia with love this uh encryption device that they're trying to get from the russians it sounds an awful lot like an enigma machine yeah. enigma machine from the the second world war which fleming would have been very familiar with but it was of course still a state secret so he was you know dropping some hints without actually breaking his uh, uh oath to maintain the, the secret so yes he was certainly interested in that the the problem was that technology and science develops at such a rapid pace especially in the 60s with the space race and things like that and Fleming wasn't alive to keep pace with that so the filmmakers had to update stuff even though the books were only a few years old when they originally got hold of them Um, and it's only accelerated since then you know we've ended up with Bond in Space in the 1980s Uh, it's Yes, they have certainly taken the technology and the science and absolutely run with it. Uh, It hasn't always worked, but by and large, we just, you know, it's entertainment. We go along with it. It doesn't have, it's not gritty documentary. It's it's fun. So why not put a giant laser in space? It's a film. You can. (laughs) Oh, I
0: agree. No, it is fun. Some years ago, my husband and I went to, trying to think when it was, it must have been, 2012. Anyway, now it was a little bit later than that. We went to we went to Burma right when it opened up, um, now called Myanmar, and um, and we went down down the river from Mandalay down to um, and at the end of it we went back to Bangkok. And when we had first gone to Bangkok to start this trip, uh, the group we were with booked us in at the Hilton. And I looked upriver and I saw the Peninsula Hotel. And I said to my husband, we come back. I said, I want to stay at the Peninsula. And now he said, we've already booked at the Hilton. I said, I don't really care, Rob. The chances are we're never going to come back. And I want to stay at the Peninsula. So as it happened, our travel agent was with us. She booked me in on American Express to this wonderful suite at the Peninsula. And when we got back to Bangkok, everyone on the trip, was ill with some gastro respiratory thing, but me. So my husband, abandoning you know his concern um, about what we were paying for, went to the Hilton. And I went to the Peninsula. But the reason I mention all this is that the big treat at the Peninsula was at night, and you're right on the on the Chowchilla River they wrapped you up in blankets and put you in lounge chairs around the pool and they have this giant outdoor screen <laughs> and they show goldfinger and it oh. was just hilarious you know to be there there you were wrapped up against giant eating mosquitoes and you know on the river in bangkok um, and watching goldfinger and it does it was really dated by then and you just yes. have to ask yourself you know really could she survive the gold paint and you know all the rest of it all those questions Occurred to me, and I realized, Catherine, that when I first saw it, because I saw them all in in real time, I didn't think about that stuff, you know, I just accepted it. But by the time I saw the rescreen in whatever it was, the mid teens here, it had become far less believable.
1: Oh, absolutely. I was talking to someone just the other day, and uh, prior to talking to me, bless him, he went back and re watched Dr. No. And he said, You know, I saw it years and years and years ago, and I just accepted everything in that film as you know this is great and so watching it now that dragon tank is just terrible it's just (laughs) it's It's not good, (laughs) but we went along with it. And I'm sure there's stuff in the current films that we're like, oh yeah, this is amazing. And 20 years down the line, we're going, oh my God, what were they thinking? That was, that just looks, you know, you can see the strings. It's so terrible kind of thing. I just think we learn how things are done. And so you can, you can see the join. You can see where the the special effect is uh, incorporated, which I don't know. uh, are we still willing to suspend disbelief? I'm still willing to suspend disbelief and watch Goldfinger. But if I'm writing a book about it, yeah, I'm going to pause it and uh, write down my, hang on a minute. Right. How long has James Bond been knocked out in the kitchen while this woman is being painted? That doesn't seem right to me.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> and wouldn't she suffocate with the gold paint on her skin and you know all the other weird things that could happen to you? Or I don't know. What does happen to you if your skin is entirely sealed by gold paint?
1: Um, you get very, very hot. Basically, you don't suffocate. Yeah. Uh, your lungs do a very good job of absorbing oxygen. You can you can do without the little bit that goes through your skin. But if you can't release your sweat, then your body can't regulate its internal temperature very well. So you'll get very, very hot. And to the point where if you get above 42 degrees centigrade, which is, oh, conversion, maybe 110, 115 Fahrenheit, somewhere in that region, Cells start to die and things go wrong, but it takes a long time. Uh, You have to be covered for about six hours to, uh, there's some brilliant physicists who actually did the calculations for that poor lady (laughs) in Goldfinger. And they figured out she had about six hours before she was really in trouble. And that's a lot of time to wake up, go all bit hot and shower off the paint but it's a film. You've got to accelerate this stuff. No one's going to sit through six hours of a woman <laughs> unconscious slowly getting, you know, too hot.
0: So automotive engineering is another thing that comes along because, you know, along with the, you know, the Martini shake and Not Stirred and the you know, fancy ladies and the whole nine yards, uh, we have absolutely cool cars as a big part of the of the bondage. And in, in you know, looking back, those cool cars today are you know they're antiquarian, so that too has been yeah
1: but it's surprising how many of them are still cool that DB5 from Goldfinger still looks amazing um and I don't know if it's because no it is just a really cool car it looks gorgeous and i don't think it's because it's had james bond driving it that we associate it with cool i think it's just i think they have extremely good taste in cars um in yeah. the bond franchise absolutely
0: plus you have to have you know either either the actor or whoever the stunt man mm-hmm. is has to do some really astonishing driving to um, one, one day no craig isn't there in particular that just has this wild road race going on
1: uh there are a few, yeah. There's a few exceptional chases in the, the Daniel Craig. My car chase favorites are actually from the Roger Moore era wow. um, when they had a guy called, I think his name was Remy Julien. I apologize if I've got that wrong, but he was just a phenomenal stunt driver. And he's the one in that canary yellow 2CV that's hurtling down a mountainside, being chased by all sorts of baddies in much faster cars. And you know, it's a Citroen 2CV. This is not a sexy car. This it is it's not a very fast car and yet it is still an exciting chase and that's something that I think the Bond films that, that I have absolutely I, I can uh, maybe a bit tongue-in-cheek about some of the plots because uh, they are a little ridiculous at times but the stunt work the presentation of this world on screen is fantastic and it's because people have done it for real. And people with tremendous skill uh, have presented these stunts, these car chases, these explosions, they've done it for real. And that takes tremendous skill, knowledge, and effort. So I applaud them wholeheartedly from that point of view.
0: Well, you have to give the broccolis huge points, you know, because they maintained the quality of that franchise all the way through. And it's really rare that there's like one you know, producers are, that, that can take a franchise and take it across. Such yeah, a I, I think
1: it's unheard of outside of, you know, all of the yes, there's been different directors, but I don't think any other franchise has been kept so in-house and so family-like wow. in its entirety you know the broccolis are still involved even yes. though cubby broccoli is no longer with us his uh, his children are still producing they still get to decide who bond is how he is presented to the world they get the say on the script the stunts etc cetera, etc cetera. so yeah fair credit oh, it's
0: amazing and in fact your other author that we were speaking about earlier i think one reason the christie franchise has held up so is is her you know her grandson matthew pritchard and now his son Um, has done a remarkable job in maintaining the Agatha Christie limited and all of the things that go with it. Um, Mm. It is if you have that continuing um, emphasis on quality, and that continuity, you're always going to wind up with a really remarkable. um, And you know, I I have no idea what will happen after the last Daniel Craig movie. But let's go back to your book, because it looks to me as though you, um, you chose to organize it what movie by movie?
1: Yeah I try to do it so there's a chapter for every film and I try to pick out something there are so many iconic moments so many uh not so tropes but things we associate with Bond and I want try to explore each of those throughout the chapters so there's a chapter about the gadgets there's a chapter about the stunts there's a chapter about uh you know villains lairs, all of the things that make us turn up and and watch in the cinema and as you say this is a franchise that's been going on for 25 years it is remarkably formulaic there are certain elements that if it's not in a bond film we are we start to pick holes in it oh well you know they didn't do this and for something that is so formulaic to do it 25 times and still be breaking box office records that's incredible
0: it is, they, they obviously have um, created an intensely loyal following. And I really like the way this is going. The Spy Who Loved Me and the Parachute Jump, for example. Goldfinger and the Laser. Uh, you Only Live Twice in the Volcano Lair or on her Majesty's Secret Service and Blowfield's Biocharos and Plot. So you do tell us actually in the table of contents, you know, what to be looking for as you move along. Octopussy and the Atomic Bomb die another day and sucked out of a plane. I mean, you know, obviously, you know, I really like your style. Um, you know, you you're obviously quite elegant, but at the same time, you know, you've approached this with with humor and um a willingness um to to really enjoy it. And you know, it's it's often hard to present science in a way that most people are going to enjoy reading, but you seem to have mastered that.
1: Oh, this is why I definitely hitch on the back of pop culture—be it Agatha Christie or even Shakespeare. Uh, you know, these are things that people are familiar with, who may never have been inside a lab and have no interest in science. But yeah. if I can get you reading about Agatha Christie or James Bond, I will sneak in some science. Sometimes quite obviously, sometimes by you know the back route, and hopefully you have a new appreciation for science or you know just the idea that science might not be as terrible as you previously thought I'll, I'll take that as a win well there's so
0: much going on now you know movies are a real um sort of testing field for a lot of you know like see there was a recent um re, re a new version of the call of the wild for example in the dog you know, is computer generated. Is what's it called? CGI? Isn't that yeah. the acronym for that? And the dog, um, in, in order for the things to happen in the movie realistically, um, they needed to do that. For one thing, dog actors have this astonishing lobby. You know, there's not a dog, you have to have like five dogs, and they have serious working hours and all the rest of it. So it's not that easy to find five similar dogs that you know you can operate with. So CGI. I think it's going to make a lot of things available in in film. Mm. You know that that would have been tough if you were casting it in a more old fashioned way.
1: Absolutely, and but to a certain extent, and I appreciate that completely. There are things that you just cannot do because they are too dangerous for the people involved, and apps, or they are just not physically possible. You need to do the computer version of it. But the thing that, like I said before. In the James Bond films, it is by and large people doing it for real. There is right. very little CGI in the James Bond world. And that is to the credit of the, the stunt actors who, you know, even Daniel Craig on occasion is the one standing on top of that train fighting someone whilst it's moving. Uh, and it's all controlled. Yes, they're they're tied on, et cetera, et cetera. But it is dangerous. Yeah. And it's interesting you say about the dog I think people are okay with Daniel Craig on top of a train you know pretending to fight someone if they put a dog on top of a moving train there'd be riots because you couldn't endanger a dog that way the dog can't you know read the contract see what the insurance claim would be if he has an accident he can't you know he can't make his case so I'm quite glad that there are lobbies that you know do that on the dog's behalf.
0: Absolutely, well, it's a trope of crime fiction. Any author will tell you that you can kill off almost any one, but you can't ever kill the dog. You no. can't seem to be more vulnerable. It may be goats <gasps> at the pay, but you are never, ever allowed to kill a dog um, in successful crime fiction. Yeah. And the other thing you know, that I think it's important to remember too is that thrillers, which after all the James Bond movies are, they're not Agatha Christie style, old fashioned detection, they are thrillers thrillers really rise and fall on the villain as much oh absolutely than they do the hero so you know when you think about goldfield or you think about you know blowfield or whatever yeah. they, they they created really
1: amazing villains james bond would be no one without his villains no yeah. one would care if he was just you know an actual spy sitting listening to you know tapped phone conversations that's dull you have to have a big name over the top world dominating villain otherwise why would james bond be special he wouldn't you know he wouldn't show his incredible abilities to get out of every scrape and thwart every plot if those plots weren't over the top well, and
0: it also, you know, the stakes have to be extremely high, you know, the mm. fate of the world has to sort of, you know, Dr. No, I mean, you know, many ways was really a cartoonish kind of a villain, um, but, you Absolutely. know, I thought it was the weakest of all the Bond villains, Dr. No, to me, was was the weakest, but yet, you know, I don't know, there was just something about, I still remember the movie and the surprise, you know, of of seeing it because, I mean people coming to them now know what to expect, but those of us who actually went to the theater when it came out, uh, didn't know what to expect and were, you know, the volcano kind of gives you pause, but at the same time, <laughs> so I go, oh. Um, it, it just created this, this great experience, but I think they got better. With the villains as they moved along.
1: Definitely. I I think Dr. No was definitely heavy, heavily stereotyped. He's also he's not in the film very much. He only yeah. shows up really for the last third. So there's not much opportunity for for the actor to actually do much with the role. Um, whereas Auric Goldfinger, um oh, I've forgotten the actor's name. Uh whoever was cast played, he's brilliant. Mm-hmm. He has so much a presence Uh, yeah when you've got someone as stylish as Sean Connery standing there you have to have someone with a bit of presence to stand next to him otherwise who's going to even notice Uh, So, yeah, the the villains have definitely got better. The fact that Blofeld has been in I don't know how many films shows you that people are as in love with the villains as they are with the good guys, which is I think it's much like the murder mystery genre. We're we're fascinated by the baddies, the the people who do terrible, terrible things. We want to know about them, which is kind of messed up in a way. But it is, it is our fascination. So yeah, those villains have to live up to expectations. And by expectations, I mean, you know, thoroughly horrible people.
0: Yep. And with very high stakes, as I mentioned. So Mm -hmm. in order for all this science and so forth to work, Bond is not himself, you know, cast as the genius back in the laboratory. So how important is the, you know, the guy that is largely responsible for all this cool stuff?
1: Well, I mean, Bond, yes, he acts on his own, but he does have his team behind him. He does have M telling him what to do, even if he ignores him, her. Uh, But he also has Q, who has remarkable foresight as to what he might need on his next mission and provides all of the gadgets that will come in handy. Perhaps not quite as Q intended, but they always come in handy at some point. Sometimes they blow up before James Bond gets to use them, but not often. (laughs) <laughs> um, so yeah he has he has tanner he has money penny always looking out for him and we love those characters i think almost as much as james bond i know that when ben wishaw turned up as q in it was skyfall so q hadn't been in the first two daniel craig films and he turned up in the third and it's like, oh, yeah, this is all is right with the world. This this is how it should be. There should be a queue. There should be a team because, yes, one man saving the world repeatedly does wear a bit thin, um, however much you dress it up. So I love that the others get involved. Um, it's almost like the Scooby gang by the end of it. They're all kind of, you know, I'm just waiting for them to pull the mask off the fairground owner uh, at the end of it. But, it, it, Yeah. I love them all. So Q is brilliant, and I think brilliantly played by all actors who've taken on the role. Um, But, yes, I love the disdain between the two uh, characters, between James Bond and Q. James has no faith in Q. Q has no faith in James. And that works extremely well. But, yeah, genius.
0: It really is. Well, Spycraft is, you know, um, actually, I've read recently that because technology has advanced to the point where you know things can be hacked at will and all the rest of it that actual spies are returning to old spycraft which is you know yes. like sitting on the park bench or the you know the letter drop or whatever because you can't mm-hmm. hack it um, absolutely I and, heard you know, I, I find that wonderful that in point of fact you know we may be circling back to uh I mean, I've I've always thought that that because Fleming was so active in the was it the SOE right, and he was part of the um, I think he was part of the, the that wonderful coup where they diverted the Germans from landing in Normandy by faking a, a you know creating. I'm
1: sure, yeah, mints me. And
0: you know, I'm trying to remember. It's a whole long wonderful story about how they actually succeeded in in floating a, a dead person with documentation and so forth from I think it was maybe Portugal to Spain or some such thing anyway convincing the Nazis that the the allies were going to land somewhere else so it was a brilliant piece of spycraft and misdirection and then of course there was the whole enigma thing and I always think that that probably inspired Fleming you know Mm -hmm. the enigma deal um, probably had Mm -hmm. something to do with his um, with Q and all of all of that stuff, because Enigma was truly cutting edge. I mean, Alan Turing, absolutely. And, you know, the whole thing was just an incredible um, step forward. And also, you know, the the whole bit trying to make nuclear, you know, nuclear weapons, fusion, and heavy water, and and there was a lot. Was that was that group that went to Norway, you know, and actually shut down the heavy water? Oh peak? yeah. You yeah. know, I mean, just some some truly James Bond sorts of actual things that happened. Absolutely,
1: and I think that is why it worked when Fleming was writing it, because this stuff, everyone sort of knew that this stuff had kind of been done during the war. It wasn't terribly known about until many, many years afterwards because it was national security, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, people did go to extraordinary lengths, invent incredible machines and devices that did tip the balance the right way towards the ending of the war and yes to tap into that seems obvious now with hindsight and now today I think we are quite fearful of that technology because it's a yeah it's a different attitude today because like you say lots of people it's easy to be hacked it is easy for someone to steal your identity it is a lot of unknowns in the world and we don't have that necessarily that same trust of technology as we did 50 60 years ago when it was just like oh brilliant clever people have figured this out it'll all be good and I don't think we necessarily have that today. And I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, if we should be more trusting or if we should be less trusting. So, yeah, the technology has had to shift. And I think that's another thing with the Daniel Craig films. They've gone back to basics. They've got rid of a lot of the ridiculous gadgets. Um, In Skyfall, Bond gets a gun and a radio. It's not high tech. Yeah, okay, the gun can only be fired by him. But, you know, this is not, uh, you know, this is not x-ray specs. This is not, um, you know, some of the more ridiculous things that have been packed into Bond's watch. But you believe that Q, because he is clearly so smart, he's clearly so into his work, that if that was needed, he could do it. But, uh, yeah, again, the Bond films reflect the times that they are made in and you know politically scientifically yeah i think that's another reason why we keep going back because it is a commentary on how we see the world at the moment
0: plus we've had the queen the entire time and you know i think that that you know the continuity that she you know she bridged a whole a whole era 70 years is uh, remarkable it, um, it is
1: the- remarkable I, I honestly, I think it's, I don't know how different it's going to be.
0: But I mean, it was easier to, I think it was easier to believe in the hierarchy of it and, you know, the trustworthiness of M and so forth, um, that, you know, she stretched that whole, that whole attitude or that whole,
1: yes, whatever you want to call very... it, all the
0: way through. <laughs>
1: yeah it was very hierarchical you know bond answers to m except when he doesn't <laughs> but there was a clear we never ever doubt james bond's motive he might he might go off piste he might disobey m's rules he might not he might side with the bad guys or you think he is but you always know and absolutely trust that he is on the side of the good and it doesn't necessarily have to be a country or a monarch, but he is on the side of the good and what is right. And that that is an unshakable thing. So that is, again, a continuity that has been in all of the interpretations of James Bond. He's absolutely trustworthy. He's not safe to be around, but his moral compass right. is very rarely well when it comes to women maybe not but (laughs) it's certainly in terms of saving the world his moral compass is unwavering he will do whatever it takes and a lot of people might die in the process but we know that ultimately he's doing it for the right reasons
0: i think well it's very queen and country i think and you know there's a new paradigm That well it's interesting that skyfall you know um and what happens in Skyfall is, is also the end of, you know, the end of the Queen Zara as well. So looking at all of this, you know, you've obviously had to familiarize yourself with a great many things, bioterrorism, diamonds, parachutes, exploding stations, electra. I mean, so you know, that must is that fun for you to, you know, to have to immerse yourself in one aspect after another?
1: Yes, I think I have quite a low boredom threshold. So (laughs) um, it's quite fun to think, well, okay, if I'm not so interested in this topic, next week, I can look up space lasers and see if that's a practicality. So yes, I enjoy the variety of it. Um, And yeah, I love the fact that even the the sort of the basic scientific principles are constant. So I can use my basic scientific training to sort of, you know, fact, not fact check, but kind of, is this rubbish? Is, is there anything in this and go down paths to find out if there is anything in it? Uh, Yeah. So it's fun. I like the variety, but I also like that there is an overarching theme in that I'm always talking about Bond and Bond's world. And I try not to go, too much uh on deviations or at least you know if there is a deviation we're coming back to bond for a re- you know that deviation is there for a reason and we're coming back to bond eventually so yeah it, it's good fun one week lasers the next week viruses
0: um yeah <laughs> you gave yourself a structure by you know by deciding to work your way down through the films and so you're right you did have to occasionally take one less interesting in order to get to the next one, but it kept you, it kept you on, on structure, so to speak.
1: Absolutely, yeah, and for me, writing non-fiction, I, I can't imagine how it is writing fiction, but certainly writing non-fiction, having it all planned out, and it's, it's not filling in the gaps, but it is working to a structure, and so it actually writing a book can be very, very daunting. It is a long-term project. And as I say, I have a low boredom threshold. So breaking it up into little chunks that, you know, even if it's not a chunk that I'm particularly interested in, I know it won't last long, so I can go on to the next one. Oh, I
0: love that as a motivating thing for, you know, for a writer. I think that sometimes um, in conversations I've had with authors, they didn't start out to write crime fiction, but because crime fiction does have structures, Different yeah. different genres of crime fiction have specific structures. It's it's helpful for especially a new author, you know, to have that skeleton there. That um, you know, in your case, it's mapping your way down the Bond films. But you know, if you take a um, you know a, a Christie investigation or um, a thriller that has to go a particular way, whatever, um, it does. It does solve the structure problem. It's kind of a trip yeah. to how to write a novel. So who knows? You might one day emerge with one. Why don't we call Ian up and see if he's got any questions from people watching? Or he had sort of a nifty topic of his own he was going to talk to you about.
2: Yes, we do have some questions here. Uh, what is your favorite James Bond film?
1: Oh, my favorite James Bond film. Okay. The one I... If it comes on the TV, and I I don't know what it's like in the States, but there seems to be a James Bond film on TV pretty much every week in the UK. So if I'm kind of flicking through the channels and I stumble across Live and Let Die, there's a lot wrong with that film. But I probably will watch it to the end Um, because, yeah, there's a lot in it that I love. There's a lot in it that makes me cringe, but there's a lot to love.
2: While doing uh, your research and watching all the Bond films, which stunt jumps out to you as the most harrowing or exciting one?
1: The one that I think if you do a clip, you know, like they do like reels of the best James Bond stunts, the one that's always going to be in the top one or two, even though it's from a film many, many years ago, it is the skiing off a cliff and the parachute opens. That is such a moment, especially in UK cinemas when the, the British flag was on the parachute. Apparently that took the roof off. Um, and this is just the beginning of the film. We've got a whole James Bond film after. So that stunt, and also when I was reading about it, I, you kind of know, yes, someone did that. But the circumstances under which that stunt was done are extraordinary. And the fact that they it was terrible weather, incredibly dangerous. They had like a 15-minute window. They did one take and they abandoned their camera equipment where it was to get the hell out before anyone died. So the fact that only one of the, I think it was six cameras were trained on this stump man, and only one of them caught the entire fall. In fact, one shot, it's yeah, that really stood out to me as someone did that some idiot said yeah sure <laughs> uh,
0: yeah some idiot right well that might be a little harsh but nonetheless I, you're no right.
1: i i'm sorry i'm such a coward i would if anyone said Do you want to ski off a cliff and you might not die i know
0: it just you know to die just to make a movie <laughs>
1: yeah, <laughs> that, like, under no why. circumstances is that worthwhile
0: no <laughs> It's happened a few times. I mean, you know, there have been a few instances. It was it Ian, was it Bruce, you know, the, can't think of his name, the martial arts guy. Didn't he die making a movie? Or maybe he just died, I can't Mm -hmm. remember. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we had the shooting on set recently, you know, with Mm -hmm. Alex Baldwin, although that was not an action sequence. That was something entirely different. So, you know, movie making is not entirely risk-free. Bruce Lee, that's who I was trying to think Mm -hmm. of. But I don't remember if he died in the execution of a movie or if he just died too young. I can't recall.
2: No, they were shooting and he got shot. And so did his son, Brandon, during
1: in the, crow. the shooting
2: the Crow. He was oh, okay. shot by a stunt pistol that misfired and right. killed him too. Yep. So uh, as you mentioned all the villains for James Bond, which villain do you think had the most uh executable plan. <laughs> if, if
0: that was
1: That's really yeah. well
0: phrased, you know? I like yeah. That.
1: <laughs> so for all all of the wannabe supervillains out there, which one should you actually invest time in as a realistic option right. is what we're talking about. It was closest. <laughs> <laughs> um I oh god. I'm not sure that it's practical entire goldfinger one is a great villain to the idea of irradiating the gold in fort knox so that your own gold stocks increase in value that is actually a little bit genius his particular execution of it i i think he would actually blow up fort knox and vaporize the gold turn a lot of it into mercury in the process he uh, you know he's an over-the-top villain he used an over-the-top bomb but certainly in terms of the theory if yeah that that seems practical to me of course if you are going to need your own gold reserves and a plan to get inside fort knox so things to be working on
0: they never seem to be daunted by the impossible
1: No, and they never seem to be daunted by the budget of these things. The profit margin on some of these plans must be extremely narrow. Um, Just the investment in building rockets that can swallow other rockets so that you can start World War III seems a lot of investment and a lot of money, time and effort when you could just shoot someone and probably get the same result.
2: (laughs) That's a good point, <laughs> and cheaper. <laughs>
1: oh, <but laughs> Heck of a lot cheaper. So cinematic. <laughs> like, you
0: have to have to allow for that. Wow. How and
1: about then, that's that?
0: That's another really interesting question about you know the budgets and the budget increases. I mean, because you know when when they started, it was relatively low tech. Presumably, oh, the budget if, was. But it, to it know was made on along. a
1: shoestring. Uh, Seriously, Doctor No Know was made an absolute shoestring because I think the, the the film companies just didn't see what the appeal was. So they're like, we'll give you a million dollars. If you can make a film for a million dollars, fair play. And they made Doctor No Know on a million dollars. I mean, you can see where the budget ran out. It's the dragon tank. That thing is, <laughs> I'm sorry you to go on to about it again. Dragon tank. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a real issue with that dragon tank. It's terrible. But if it had more money behind it, um, it could have been absolutely phenomenal. But they tripled the budget for the next film because it was such an incredible success. And, of course, they've gone up and up and up since then. Right. But they've always made their money back and some. Um, it's a good investment, <laughs> a James Bond film. Yeah, that is
0: interesting because a lot of movies really end up losing money For you know, for the winners. There are a lot of losers. But, yeah, I'm yeah. sure... I'm sure that, you know, the funds available had a lot to do with the technology that they used in the movies.
1: Absolutely. But also, you know, Ken Adams behind some of those sets just making the thing look, you know, way more than the million dollars that was actually available. The things they did achieve on that budget are fantastic. And what they've been able to achieve on even bigger budgets is even better. But you know, they talk about, oh, this film didn't do so well. It means it didn't make as many multiples of the initial investment as they'd hoped. You know, I don't think there's been a Bond film that's lost money. Um, not even the ones that weren't particularly rated at the time.
0: Well, with residuals and all the rest of it, I mean, there's a very long tail income stream attached to, as you say, they keep showing. So, yeah. you know, is it it would strike me that may, they might not have made as much money initially, but they probably all have created a pretty decent income stream as they have aged.
1: Yeah, I, I, things like Goldfinger, I think it made its money back in days. Well, Are I you? don't
0: know what the Peninsula Hotel had to pay in order to show it there <laughs> by a it's river, true. but I'm pretty sure they didn't get to do it for free.
1: No. Right. Or maybe no one's checking up on the Peninsula Hotel in Myanmar anyway, so.
0: Hard to tell, no, it was in Bangkok. <laughs> I'm sure that. there is one in Myanmar. You know, it's all gone to hell since we were there. So I'm really glad. Here's another lesson for you. If you have a chance to go do something, do it because you absolutely, the world's so uncertain, you can't ever be sure you're gonna get another shot at, um, you know, going from Mandalay to Rangoon. It's right, true. anything else there?
2: Uh, one final question. Of all of Bond's gadgets, which one do you want to have the most for yourself?
1: Which one do I want to have the most? I, I have to confess, I'm not really a gadget person. That, it, that is the bit of the films that I'm like, okay, that's cool. But I, yeah, I quite like some of the cars. Is that too big a gadget? No, (laughs) no.
2: I don't. don't, car would you want?
1: (laughs) Oh, definitely the DB5. Or or the Lotus. It doesn't have to turn into a submarine. I'll compromise, but a Lotus would be lovely.
0: A Lotus. Oh man, you're right. They are such they're a Formula Five racing car that you could really lose your mind over. But you're right. It doesn't have to turn into a submarine. You can just pool around somewhere in it. Love it. well. this has really been a fun conversation,
1: Catherine. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. It's been great fun. Thank you very much for inviting me.
0: Well, it was our pleasure. Ian, thank you for another great hosting job. Let me point out to you that we have got copies because it's just out in hardcover of Super Spy Science, Science and Death in the World. You know what? This is just a wonderful gift idea. I mean, if you know anyone who's been attracted or faithful to the Bond movies, or maybe somebody who's never even seen a Bond movie, this would be a wonderful gift. Um, I really um, recommend it that way. And sadly, sadly, our book, Catherine and I, and the other contributors, I can't really recommend that you pay $175 for this. Go to
1: a library. I'm sure it'd be in a library. But it's a
0: wonderful, um, I treasure, this is my, my, my review copy as a contributor, I assume you got one too. I did, um, yes. Yep, um, and I'm really delighted with it. Um, maybe I'll, maybe Ian, maybe what I'll do is I'll bring it down to the store and we can, you know, let people leaf through it, chain it, like the, you know, like <laughs> bodily, and, <laughs> chain it to a desk. Right. And then let people look through it. But, um, but the cancer really um, is terrific on poisons and on Agatha Christie. So um, if we can, if we can find copies of As for Arsenic, it's a really fascinating book, I think. It and, should
1: and, be out there. I, I I don't know why people in the States struggle to get hold of it. It, it shouldn't be. It should be out there. Good. If Poisons and Agatha Christie is your thing, then yes. Well,
0: Agatha Christie, as I said, is truly having another big moment. You know, it's so fascinating to me that she has come around again. But you know, but so is Bond, and so is Holmes, and I'm trying to think, Ian, are there any other iconic characters you can think of that have lasted, you know, for decades? Who could we think of? Maybe Hannibal Lecter, but, you know, he hasn't really come around again. It was just like one movie, and,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: you know, that was it. It's really, it's really um, amazing how some of these literary characters just never die. (laughs) I don't know. We have one tonight, actually. We do have not a character, but the Clive Custer adventure series is continuing. And we have tonight, we have Jack de with a really very interesting book, um, which ends with The Sinking of the Lusitania. Um, And I learned a lot about The Sinking of the I thought it went down with everyone on board, but it turns out that was not what actually happened. Mm -hmm. Lots of them were saved. Um, and it was fairly close to Ireland, so many of them were saved and brought ashore in Ireland, so it's interesting how you can, you know, if you don't read history, finally, you can make assumptions that turn out not to be true, so that was great. I'm looking forward to talking to Jack about it. Anyway, enjoy the rest of your evening, Catherine. Thank you so very much, Ian. I will see you later. Bye, everyone. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors we'd like to expand them and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.